You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I'm very grateful for each of you tuning in today and support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, bringing the Jackson Hole community residential and commercial food waste composting options. Call 307-733-7678 for more information. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,662 tons of food waste are disposed of in the trash in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve the county's goal to reduce, aiming for zero waste. For more information on Teton County, ISWR's residential and commercial food waste programs, visit tetoncountywy.gov slash recycle. Change begins with each of us, one day at a time. Everyone, I enjoy reading and learning from others, which guides me to share a quote before we begin this episode. Today's quote is, why not go out on a limb? Isn't that where the fruit is? And that's from Frank Scully. Today on episode 198, I sit down with Kyle Kissock, the communications manager with Jackson Hole Wildlife Foundation. Locals and visitors from around the world highly value the wildlife which inhabit this valley. As one of the longer standing organizations in the valley, Jackson Hole Wildlife Foundation works to preserve and protect one of our most natural resources, the wildlife, and not just the big game that everybody thinks about, but the small birds as well. And Kyle shares with us what has changed over the years with wildlife habitat right here in this valley in the area and how the changes make a difference in our lives, which not everybody thinks about how wildlife impacts our lives. Kyle, welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection, and thank you for taking your time to join me here today. Yeah, thanks, Stefan. I'm really excited to be with you. It's my my first podcast, so I'm looking forward to the, the spotlight today. Well, life has plenty of firsts for each of us. You're the first person that I've had on the podcast to talk about wildlife, I believe. Oh boy. All right. Bat and lead off. Yeah, yeah. That's a, it's an important topic. I mean, people here are like super passionate about it. So hopefully I can, can do it justice and, and answer some questions today. Who, who else have you had on your podcast recently? Recent was Carrie Jersey with Jackson Hole Public Art. And yeah, she was episode 190. So there's a few for you to go back and listen to whenever you have time. <laughs> Well, when we're done, I'll have to do that. That's yeah. Awesome. If you have a road trip, you can listen Love to it. a few. Right. Episodes. We'll get the whole community in. That's right. Yep. Now, Kyle, what brought you to Jackson? Where did you grow up and where were you born? How did you, how did you land here? Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a Midwesterner, which, you know, I meet a lot of people out here from, from the Midwest. I grew up in Southern Ohio in Dayton. And uh, I don't think my story is that unique. In fact, probably a lot of people share a very similar story, right? So we did some family road trips out here uh, during summer vacation. And um, I got to experience this place as a kid. I uh, got to do some fishing, got to do some hiking and backpacking. And so, you know, the first opportunity really that I had 
to look at a career and to look at, at jobs after school, after college. I made it a priority to look 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 out here. And I came out six or seven years ago, I think, to work for, for Teton Science Schools, which is another pretty common thing um, that I experience here. It's, there's a lot of folks who've come through that the Teton Science Schools pipeline. But that's where I started my, you know, my time in Jackson. And yeah, I've been loving, loving every minute of it, with the exception of some, some long cold winters, maybe for, uh, for the last six years. That's, that's beautiful. Thank you, Kyle. You're not the first person I've had on the podcast from Dayton, Ohio. No way. Because I've had so many people on there at this time, I cannot recollect who else is from Dayton, but there's been somebody else connected to Dayton. And here's how I remember that is because my aunt, an uncle lived in Dayton. I remember visiting with my cousins uh, in Dayton. So my cousins lived in Dayton in Ohio. And otherwise, I probably wouldn't remember Dayton, Ohio versus, you know, Saskatchewan, wherever. <laughs> or, But cool. I guess I've never referenced Ohio as the Midwest, but that's great that. Oh, that's, that's what we could spend an hour just on that. Nah, we're not going <laughs> to talk about that. We're not going to talk about that. And I love that you you came out here to work at the science schools. My buddy Josh and Kevin work over there. Yep. Did you work with Josh Clayman? Yeah. So I think Josh is in in fundraising, but yeah. I know him well. He's definitely an inspiring guy and, and yeah. inspired me as an as an educator when I worked for them. Yeah. Super thoughtful. Super great guy. And then Kevin is that Kevin Krasnow? Yeah. Yeah. So you came out here and you first started working with them, and now you are with what? organization and how long have you been with them? Yeah. So I, I work for the Jackson Hole Wildlife Foundation. Um, I've been with them for three years and we are a, a small, I think we're four people now. We're looking to, to hopefully grow an additional staff person and we have some seasonal help as well, but four full, uh, four full-time staff people here in Jackson. Does every community have a wildlife foundation? <laughs> It's pretty unique to Jackson, I think. You know, there's there's a lot, obviously, of, of nonprofits, and you probably interviewed a lot of people who work for nonprofits here, right? But especially the wildlife conservation scene is pretty crowded. There are a lot of us. So, you know, we've Conservation Alliance and Wyoming Wildlife Advocates. We're the Jackson Hole Wildlife Foundation, you know, one of many. We've been around for a long time. I think it's over 25, 25 years now. So, which, you know, definitely predates my time here. And it's a cool organization, and, and maybe we'll get into it a little bit, but it has a, a history of being being run by volunteers and led by volunteers, which I think is really unique. Uh, you know, a lot of these organizations don't necessarily have that. And so so it's a volunteer organization. And then we also really pride ourselves on being able to do like hands-on work, like getting out in the field and addressing wildlife conservation problems, which is another, another unique aspect of what the Wildlife Foundation does. And- I'm I'm really curious to learn how is it different in accomplishing a, a different mission and goals compared to, like you said, there's several other wildlife mission-driven organizations as well. Yeah. So in, it's, a, you know, in a couple ways. And before I get into that, you know, my feeling is that, you know, like we're talking about, there are a lot of us and, and at worst, I think we can duplicate each other's efforts. So it's really important, I think for, for us and for all of or their sister organizations to kind of think about what sets us apart and try to amplify each other's efforts. Because if we're just duplicating the work of everybody else, none of us are really maximizing what we're good at. So I'd say for the Wildlife Foundation, what makes us special and what niche we think we like to fill um, and, and we really try to fill is that partner for our state and federal 
agencies that are in the Valley. So for instance, we work really well with Wyoming Game and Fish um, on several of our programs. We're really good partners for the Forest Service, specifically with our wildlife friendlier fencing program, which we'll hopefully get to talk about a little bit later. So it's those partnerships with agencies, I think, that set us apart. And then the other thing I think that sets us apart is the connection to volunteers, whether it's our citizen science program or wildlife friendly fence. We really draw on the local community and people have been you know, volunteering with this organization for 10, 15 years, and they just love to get out in the field with us. And we give people that opportunity to get involved because I think wildlife conservation is, it's kind of this like nebulous term and it means different things to different people. But the bottom line is people want to help and they mm -hmm. want to find a way to get back because most people care about wildlife and live wildlife. And our organization, you know, we pride ourselves in giving people that opportunity. And Kyle, I'm interested to learn, we, as a local being yeah. here for a while, we hear about moose, elk, deer, bears, wolves, occasional, you know, sheep, but don't hear as much about some of the other wildlife. I, I okay. So eagles, osprey, yeah. hear about, hear about them. What are some of the other animals that people might not hear about? Oh, I'm add one more, the pronghorn, the mountain goat. All right. So what are some animals that with your agencies that you're working with that some people might not realize that we have here in the Valley? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we do, another program of ours is uh, maintaining over a hundred nest boxes on the boundary with the National Elk Refuge. So this is just north of town as you're driving north of town. And these nest boxes are for mountain bluebirds. And I think that's, you know, even if you're not a bird watcher, you're not really into birds, you, you probably know what a bluebird is, right? They're pretty special here because they're one of the first birds that migrates back into Jackson after the wintertime. So you'll start seeing mountain bluebirds. They're vibrantly, you know, blue species of bird, right? When there's still snow on the ground, they're, you know, the first thing that comes back. And these nest boxes give them a chance to, to nest in the area. They're cavity nesters. And, and like many songbirds, they've been undergoing some declines regionally, if not nationally. And so that nest box program, you know, gives these birds a chance to, to return to Jackson and, and to nest and to have offspring. And you know, hopefully those offspring survive and migrate away and come back. So, so we do, you know, we do the bluebird habitat. And then just thinking of some other species. Yeah, you mentioned pronghorn. That's a good one. And, you know, if you're if you're not from Jackson, if you're from a different town in Wyoming, you're probably much more familiar with pronghorn. I think of them as like a sagebrush species. But pronghorn have this a really neat migration that they do from, let's just say, down around Pinedale, Cora area. And there's a herd of pronghorn that migrates up the Grovant, so up the Upper Green River, if your listeners know where that is, and then comes into the Upper Grovant migrates out the Grovant into Grand Teton National Park and summers in Grand Teton. And, and sometimes you can even spot pronghorn right here north of town on the Elk Refuge. So yeah, that's a species that, that completes this, like, I think it's a really neat, you know, annual movement, this migration that we don't really think about a lot here, but was another one of my personal favorites. Yeah. The mountain goat. We do like seeing them. Oh, the mountain goat. So mountain goat. Well, I'm sorry. What's the nickname for the pronghorn? Speed goat. Speed goat. Thank you. Speed goat. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mountain goat is another one we could talk about. So that one I, people probably have heard of. I'm guessing I know the park is is doing that program where they've been been culling them. They're not a native species and they can impact the native bighorn sheep in Grand Teton National Park. And so yeah, that program has been underway now for for a year or two. But people might be familiar with mountain goats down closer to Alpine. I know, and I, I haven't heard about it this winter. In recent winters, you can see them right down along the road in the Snake River Canyon, sometimes even on the road. The mountain goats are the white ones, bighorn sheep being like the brown with the, the curled horns. And um, yeah. I, I, can we go back to the birds though, the songbirds? Let's birds? go back to the birds, yeah. Okay, because living in, in East Jackson in the spring, it, it is such a uplifting part of spring when you start seeing, not just seeing the birds in your backyard, but you start hearing them. Yeah. It's like, wow, it's, it's getting lighter sooner. You can now hear the birds chirping. It's kind of energizing. I'm, I'm curious to know what's causing a decline of songbirds. Yeah. I mean, I think like broadly speaking, you're, you're right as that we are seeing decline in, in songbirds and we're seeing that really not just here, but in a lot of places. And there's a lot of reasons for it that, that aren't local and are, are national, right? And, and even global. So, so one big one is just habitat loss, right? A lot of these birds that migrate back to Jackson in the spring and summer, they spend the winter in, let's just say, Central and South America. Maybe there's deforestation going on in, in the place where they spend the winter. You know, that's going to affect their populations. We're also seeing things like increased wildfires in the West. And I think we're all very familiar with that here in Jackson. And uh, there's some thought that that is affecting the birds as well, the smoke from that. Things like drought, less water, right? All of these things kind of have, have small effects and over time can really, can really compound. I will say that I do think we're lucky here. I mean, we have so much protected habitat in this area with the national parks and the national forests. But I think once the birds get here, they they do pretty well. Mm -hmm. But yeah, definitely, you know, songbird decline. It's it's kind of the proverbial like canary in the coal mine, right? Like mm -hmm. once you see the birds start to start to decline, it probably doesn't bode well for for the the broader ecosystem. So it's definitely something we're you know trying to keep an eye on. Mm. Thank you, thank you for sharing. Yep. And and Kyle, how important is wildlife to our community, our area? <laughs> I get the sense it's pretty important. You know, I alluded to this earlier, but when we talk about wildlife conservation, one thing that I have come to realize in my time working here is that that phrase means different things to, to different people. Mm -hmm. You know, wildlife conservation might mean one thing to the Sierra Club. It might mean a completely different thing to an organization like, say, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, right? But But we're all kind of, you know, bound by this, this love of wildlife, regardless of the field that we're in whether we're hunting, whether we're bird watching. So I do think it's this like, well, I should say like the the love or respect, interest in wildlife is one of these unifying things, especially a time when we're so divided by politics and by identity. Like nobody gets upset about seeing a moose, right? It's just like a cool thing. And so I think definitely for this community, it's like, it's a huge part of why everybody lives here. And it's certainly a huge part of why people come here from all over the world is they want to experience, you know, our nature and our wildlife and our open spaces. Yeah, it's pretty impressive to see some of these animals being active in their natural habitat. 
it's pretty neat. I mean, like you asked about like where I'm from in Dayton, Ohio. And I think back to Dayton, and Dayton's a great place to grow up. But you know, maybe you know we get a white-tailed deer mm-hmm. wandering through our neighborhood, but but it's nothing like out here where you have you know free-ranging migrating herds of pronghorn and bison and grizzlies. It's just completely different. And and I get that it's not for everybody, but for a certain type of person who who's drawn to the outdoors and, and to more rural community. I mean, I think Jackson is just, I don't know that it gets better <laughs> than being in this area and in this ecosystem. So that's for sure. Two animals that I am very intrigued by, yeah, which are in our ecosystem, but you might not see as much or most likely not see ever or at all. One would be, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one's the mountain lion. Yeah. And then two's the wolverine. Yeah. And and I'm curious to know, do you all have any involvement with about their habitat, their tracking, their what their overall population is like? Well, well, wolverine, you know, that that's like Bigfoot, man. Like, like, you, you know, <laughs> everyone has like that, like that Wolverine story. Oh, I think I saw a Wolverine. I think I saw a Wolverine track. No, I love it. And we have, I don't even know if it's live on our web page anymore, but we used to have a Wolverine sighting report where people could report Wolverine sightings or Wolverine, Wolverine tracks. And then we would kind of vet them. And then if we thought it was legit, we would pass it along to the biologist for the Forest Service who could, who could confirm that because the Forest Service is interested in, in Wyoming Game and Fish is interested in, in tracking wolverines. I mean, there's just not that many of them. They really are probably the most rare mammal in this ecosystem with the possible exception of like a lynx or like a, a fisher, which is another large member of the weasel family. But I, quite frankly, I'm not even sure if we have lynx or, or fisher here. But we, wolverines, certainly we do have in the ecosystem. They're just really rare. But Stefan, what I, what I was going to say is it's, it's, uh, it's kind of fun. We would get a ton of emails of people reporting wolverine sightings. And maybe like one in every 20 was actually a wolverine or was something that might be wolverine tracks. You know, people would submit marmots is the big one you know people hiking in grand teton have a marmot and they they tell me they see a wolverine and and you got a great look at it and it was five feet away and and then i asked for a picture and it's you know it's a picture of a marmot but every now and then we would get one that's a wolverine i mean i remember there was a couple backpackers in the northern part of the wind river range two years ago sent a sighting and sent an iphone picture and he's, the, you know, the animal is pretty far away. It's like across this high alpine lake on this talus field, but you can tell it's a wolverine. It's like that. They were able to capture that with an iPhone? I think they got it. Yeah, it's super small in the photo, but you can see exactly what it is. And then their description is just like classic, you know, classic wolverine description. So it does happen and they are here. They're just, they're just super, super rare. Mm-hmm. And then what about the mountain lion? Mountain lions, yeah, they're definitely here. Again, like super hard to see. We had, I don't know if you remember this, but was it was it two winters ago? It wasn't this winter, but last winter, there was that one on high school Butte. Yeah. Uh, do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Could drive over there and see it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was the second time I've seen a live mountain lion. Mm. I think a lot of community members got lucky enough to see that. There's some great photos taken of that cat. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was maybe the winter before there was a mountain lion on an elk out on the National Elk Refuge Road that was visible from a scope. So 
You know, again, they're here and, and I can't speak to to numbers, but, you know, everywhere you go on every trail leaving town, you're going to be in mountain lion habitat. OK, but you're probably not going to see one. You're probably not going to have an encounter with one. Mm-hmm. But they're here. You know, they're just they're just super, super elusive. Yeah. Kyle, I'm I'm <clears throat> so enjoying this. I want to hear more about the programs that the Jackson Hole Wildlife Foundation has. We do need to take a quick break from to get a word from a sponsor. And we're going to come back and continue the conversation. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,954 tons of food waste are disposed in the trash right here in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve our county's goal to reduce waste and recycle more, which will help us aim for zero waste. For more information on Teton County Integrated Solid Waste and Recycling's Curb to Compost Commercial Food Waste Program, visit tetoncountywy.gov slash recycle and join today. Kyle, welcome back. We just finished talking about the elusive mountain lion and wolverine. So if anybody out here that's listening has a picture of a wolverine just post it to the jackson hole connection facebook page or instagram page i'd love to see it be awesome i i would so love to see a wolverine i do have one experience i didn't see the wolverine but i smelled it and it was one winter and some people were studying the wolverine and they had trapped one in grand teton national park and we were skinning up to ski 25 short And they said, you're going to pass a wolverine trap. It's in there. Stay away from it. And you'll smell it because of what they use to bait it. But it also just stinks. And I was terrified to get close to that thing. I wasn't going to provoke it at all. But that's as close as I've ever been around a wolverine. At least knowing was. I was. That's that's, That's pretty cool. Yeah, I feel like that whole northern section of the Tetons is like just great wolverine habitat. Like they're pretty afraid of people. Like they're probably not going to be hanging out much like on Teton Pass, like right where everyone's skiing or, or places mm-hmm. where people are are sledding or snowmobiling. But yeah, you start going like north of Jenny Lake in the wintertime and those mountains that don't get much traffic, that's great Wolverine habitat. So mm. cool, cool story. Now, you all have several different programs. You have a program about wildlife fencing, wildlife underpasses, and Bearwise Jackson Hole. What's the significance of fencing and and wildlife and, and what you all are doing? Yeah, so when I'm not answering questions about wolverines, one of my jobs with Wildlife Foundation is to to help organize our wildlife-friendlier fence program. I can't take credit for this program. It's really been led by our volunteers for most of our 25-year history. And it is a really unique program to our foundation. I talked about you know this kind of setting us apart from a lot of the other nonprofits in the area. It started when a group of citizens essentially realized that there were hundreds, if not thousands of miles of of fence in this area that didn't need to be here. Hmm. And why that's a problem is fences can block wildlife movement and migration, especially animals that maybe are pregnant or are traveling through deep snow. And then at worst, wildlife, generally speaking, I'm talking about ungulates here. So deer, elk, moose can actually get trapped in barbed wire fences and die. And it's pretty sad to actually 
come across where that's happened, where an animal's tried to jump over, it's caught its rear leg in the fence, and then it's it's essentially just died there on the fence. And uh, so no one likes to <laughs> no one likes to see that. And so our fence program has has been really effective at removing fences that are on the landscape and that don't need to belong anymore. Essentially, fences where grazing leases have been retired or properties have exchanged hands, and the new owners have said, "Hey." You know, we have a barbed wire fence that runs, you know, a mile around our property and, and we don't use it. And, you know, can someone help us take it down? And so that's the role that we serve. We do that with staff. But again, we, we really rely on volunteers who are willing to give up their Saturdays or even weekdays sometimes to go out, find these fences and, and take them down. And then the last thing I'll say is when, when a fence can't come down, because a lot of times, you know, you've got to have the fence up. You, got cattle, you've got horses, maybe your neighbors have cattle, right? We're a fence out state here in Wyoming. So what we can do is we can provide funds and labor to make what's called a wildlife friendly, in quotes, conversion to that fence. So build that fence or, or add a feature to that fence in a way that an animal can move across it easier. It has less likely of a chance of getting tangled or caught up, you know, caught up in the fence. You had mentioned barbed wire. Is that as prolific and popular to use as it was when it started coming out? Yeah, that's barbed wire has a super interesting history in the West. And I'm not going to get into that too much, but but barbed wire, in my opinion, and from what I've seen is, is really popular if you're trying to contain stock. So, you know, you could probably have have somebody on this show who's from a ranching family who can talk about it much better than I can. But yeah, we see barbed wire where we're containing livestock. Maybe we're containing horses. We see something like buck and rail more and more on a property that say it's a, a you know a multi-million dollar property on the West Bank that someone buys and they really like that aesthetic, right? Mm -hmm. They they are they're attached to that. It's going to be more expensive to put in oftentimes like a nice buck and rail fence than it is to put in barbed wire. But the other time a buck and rail fence is used is when you can't really like drill into the ground. So think about like an area where there's there's cobbles really close to the surface and it's much easier to build a fence on top of the ground rather than post hole, which is what people do with, with barbed wire. Now is that buck and rail fence, does that cause problems with the wildlife as well? The yeah, so buck and rail fence is less likely, obviously, like to entangle an animal. Although we have gotten reports of where animals have tried to jump over a buck and rail fence and then like broken their legs, which mm -hmm. isn't good either. But buck rail can really be an impermeable barrier. So if you envision like an elk herd moving through the Snake River corridor, let's say behind the airport, and they run into a mile of buck and rail fence that they they just can't jump. I mean, that might have more impact on that elk herd's movement than say a barbed wire fence where they they can clear it. Mm. Hmm. But but the good thing is, and, and you you do see this with like a lot of barbed wire fences in the area, that you know, those can be built to specific heights. So I'm talking now about like the top wire on a barbed wire fence that we consider wildlife friendly. So as long as that top wire is is we say 42 inches maximum. 40 inches high preferred, an animal should be able to get over that. And so that's one thing that we, like a wild animal. So that's one thing that, you know, when we're working with landowners or ranchers, it's like one thing we'll suggest. And, and clearly we're not going to tell people what to do. It's, it's their land, but, but there are specifications that are better for, for wild animals. 
Awesome. And how many miles did you say that you fencing you guys have removed where it was not yeah, needed? So I think we're up to like 230 something and I'd have to, to check on that exact number, but it maybe doesn't sound like a lot or maybe it does. I don't know. But That's a but lot it's of material. Hard. It's yeah, because it's a lot of wire. Removing even let's just say a mile of barbed wire, you know, usually that'll take us a full day and, mm -hmm. and 20 volunteers. But the good news is that we've, you know, in our 25, 26 year history, we removed a lot of the fences that can come out. So if you drive around the Jackson Hole Valley today, even into Grand Teton National Park, you're going to see far less fences than you would have 20 years ago. And a lot of that is is the work of volunteers with, with the Wildlife Foundation. So we've definitely made an impact. And I think we're moving more towards a point where we're working on those wildlife friendly modifications I had talked about. Okay. Should we talk about the underpasses? Those are pretty cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we we chatted about that during the break. And I think that's, you know, it's it's easy to get discouraged when you're talking about wildlife conservation because it's like, man, another animal hit by a car. Or like, oh, like more habitat loss, right? Drought and fire. But there are a lot of cool things happening in the wildlife conservation world. And, and one of those is wildlife crossings. So overpasses and underpasses on roadways that let animals get across a busy roadway. And, instead of getting hit by a car or having to turn around. And we actually have a couple great examples right here in Jackson. So on South Highway 89, as part of the whole construction that's being done south of town, there's a series of wildlife underpasses that have been built in association with that construction and then associated what we call funnel fencing, which is fencing that's too high for animals to get over, but essentially funnels them to the underpasses so they, they can safely get under the road. So hmm. that's that's been really neat to see that that's going in with the construction south of town because, I mean, you may know this, but like, you know, four or five years ago, you're driving south of town at night in the winter. It just seemed like every night you're passing a dead mule deer that someone's mm -hmm. hit. You know, they just hang out right there on the road. It's really dangerous for them and obviously really dangerous for drivers. Do you think there will ever be anything along Broadway? Broadway is super tough. So I, I would I would doubt it um, uh -huh. just because you really need fencing in addition to the underpasses to mm. get the animals to cross at a certain place. Mm. And with a place like Broadway, it's just really hard to fence that. Right. There are, you know, businesses there, ways. And so on Broadway, you know, that is a, an area where especially mule deer get get hit a bunch. In fact, coming into work, I saw one on the side of the road across from the show, the Shell gas station this morning. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think the best thing we can do there is just try to, you know, try to follow that that 30 mile an hour speed zone, especially at night when when it's yeah. harder to see the animals. Yeah, I I can personally say that. Gosh, I wish the speed limit there wasn't 30 miles an hour, but, <laughs> yeah. but I tell you what, it makes a difference at night to yeah. follow that 30 because you think you're in the clear and then all of a sudden a deer jumps out at you and it's, it's not just the concern of hitting the deer, which I think some people have that perspective of, well, well, so a, a deer or an elk or whatever dies, people get injured majorly in car accidents when they hit a large animal like that. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely dangerous for drivers. It can be costly, even if you come away unscathed. And and definitely when you start going up, yeah, deer is one thing, but then you hit an elk, you know, you really don't want to hit a moose. So 
So yeah, these wildlife collisions obviously aren't great. I do like to point out that like the stats show that the vast majority happen at night. So that's when, you know, it's, it's hard to ask people to drive the speed limit all the time. I mean, that just doesn't happen. But when you're driving at night, you know, when you're driving through an area where there's a lot of wildlife moving, we're really trying to get the word about out about trying to, you know, follow the speed limit. And then also just, you know, scanning the sides of roads, paying attention. You know, a tip I like to say is like, when you see one animal cross the road, oftentimes there's another one right there, right? Mm -hmm. How often do you see a deer go across the road? You follow that deer and then there's another one right behind it. You know, especially, you know, as we're coming into to spring when animals are, are having babies, they're grouped up together. That happens a lot. So, so yeah, night's really the dangerous time, you know, dawn and dusk because visibility is lower and, and wildlife is most active. I guess there's not, it's not rocket science, but. And, and we're really fortunate to have the pathway system that we have here. Do you, and there's several tunnels for the pathway that go underneath the highway in different places. Do you all find that the wildlife use those tunnels as well? You know, Stefan, I've heard stories of people seeing moose in the the bike tunnel by the 390-22 intersection. Oh, yeah? So I, I wouldn't be shocked. To that intersection and that that pathway specifically as part of the Snake River bridge replacement. I think we're still a couple years away. I think it's like on a 2024, 2025 timeline. But on part of that, as part of that replacement, there are going to be four wildlife specific underpasses built around that intersection with fencing, which is really going to help in that area for, mm. for moose, for deer. And then, you know, that Snake River corridor is also seeing a lot of elk use, especially in recent years. So there's herds of elk that hang out kind of right there by Emily Stevens and then across the bridge. And so all that wildlife is going to be able to utilize the underpasses that are built as that as the bridge is renovated, which is really neat. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad to hear that YDOT's working with our community and, and I'm sure it it's less headache for them in the yeah. long term. Yeah, YDOT's been a great partner and, you know, they've been super receptive. We, another thing the Wildlife Foundation has done that people may know us for is we purchased a bunch of flashing speed radar signs and then those digital message boards and YDOT helps us move those and change messages and put those digital message boards by the sides of the roads in areas that are experiencing high rates of wildlife vehicle collisions at certain times of year. So yeah, they work, they work really well with us and yeah, we love working with them. Nice. And one of the other programs, bears. bears. Um, you guys have a program where people can go pet bears, right? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> no, we, uh, bears have been obviously in the news a lot lately. I, I think you've probably seen that 399's offspring, our offspring are, are no longer with her. Mm -hmm. That's, that's been the big thing. They are, they are on their own, but yeah, we're, we're members of a partnership. It's called Bearwise Jackson Hole. It's the Wildlife Foundation, the Forest Service, the Park Service, and Grand Teton National Park. And that program just provides education, outreach. We're trying to bring on a new staff person who's going to be able to assist with education, outreach, even, even funding for people who are looking to purchase bear-resistant containers. But yeah, being Bearwise is, is you know, again, I don't want to belittle, like not belittle, but lecture people here because I think most people in Jackson understand like this is bear country. Really all of Teton County is bear country. 
But we are trying to get the word out, and especially to new residents about the need to, for instance, you know, you live in the Snake River Corridor, you know, you live, let's just say like on, on Cash Drive or by the base of Snow King, right? Especially these places all see a lot of bears. Mm-hmm. So making sure you have that infrastructure, that bear-proof container for your trash, making sure you're not you know, leaving, you know, bird feeders just overflowing with seed, right? Where bears can get in and get in trouble. Because what happens is, is that when bears do find food, they get in trouble, they become habituated and unafraid of people. And then, and oftentimes they, they end up having to be euthanized. So it's something that, that nobody really likes to see. And our Bearwise program is, is designed to try to mitigate that as best we can. We, we don't need to raise more Yogi Bears and Boo Boo. No, let's let's let that be a thing of the past. Yeah, there's yeah. some pretty crazy pictures that we have of like Yellowstone back in the day where, you know, that was the whole attraction. Like you said, literally it was like petting bears or feeding them right out of your hand. And that has completely changed, like it just a 180 degree flip where that was the draw then. And now it's like, no, don't get close to the bear. Mm-hmm. Let it be a wild bear, right? We don't want it to become habituated. We don't want it to have to be euthanized. And and I think that people get that. And and again, I think, you know, just talking about like the wildness of this place and all the, the different, you know, species you can see here, you know, we want our bears to stay wild. We don't want them habituated because we end up losing them and, and no one yeah. wants that. You know that I was joking, but I think it's important for me to say people do not pet the bears, <laughs> do not feed the bears, treat the, the bear is a wild animal, stay away from it, protect your food. Be smart. Carry bear spray when you go hiking. Don't create any reason for the bear to be attracted to you or your environment in this area or any other area where it's a bear habitat. Well, the other thing, Stephen, too, is like what I think about is I don't want other people feeding a bear and habituating it when I'm out fishing or I'm out skiing or hiking. Like I don't want a bear that's fearless of people. Yeah, And so it's just like kind of courtesy to others as well is is the wilder we can keep these animals is really that's that's the goal right we want them to be afraid of us we want them to turn around and run the other way if we encounter a grizzly when we're out on a hike we don't want them to think that we're their friends <laughs> right so yeah i think we we can all do our part and and i love what you said about carrying bear spray and admittedly sometimes i forget to do that but you know it only takes one one bad encounter and i think that's just a really simple thing that people can do especially when you're you know when you're in the in the back country because there are there there's there's grizzlies everywhere now and there didn't used to be 20 25 years ago and that's one thing where i i add that people found that people who have been here for a long time you know some people pick up and realize that but others are a little bit slow because there just didn't used to be there didn't used to be grizzlies everywhere and there are now their population is doing doing really well in this ecosystem and so it's it's kind of on us to to realize that and then you know take the what i think are the logical next steps i i haven't seen many bears in my hikes but last summer i was on a hike and i kid you not within footprint distance first i saw a grizzly and then right after that was a black bear footprint on the trail. Oh, cool. And and I tell you, I made sure my bear spray was right in the spot where I knew it was and convenient. And I love, yeah, it, like stumbling across a bear track on a hike is just a really wild thing. <laughs> They're just so different than like a, a deer track or something. To see a bear track, just like, whoa. <laughs> it brings you to reality that yeah. there's something big out there. 
Yeah, you're not at a zoo, right? There's not like a, a glass thing protecting you from that barrier. You're with them in the forest right. on the trail. It's a it's an old different feeling. Kyle, talking to you has been so educational and informative. I, I appreciate you taking the time to share what the Jackson Hole Wildlife Foundation does and what you do and for for our community, but also for the wildlife out here and how important they are. And we as people we have a responsibility to help the the animals still be animals, to still be wild. What's the website for the Jackson Hole Wildlife Foundation? Well, yeah, you you we're at jhwildlife.org or you could just Google Jackson Hole Wildlife Foundation and we'll pop up if I've done my job. But yeah, we I think that's the, thanks for that plug, Stefan. We are definitely always recruiting volunteers if you want to get out and help on a fence project. We're trying to do eight separate projects this summer and and it's kind of a fun way to meet new people and just get outside and, and feel like you're doing something good for the environment and good for wildlife. So yeah, we always accept volunteers and you can you can find my contact on the website as well. Don't hesitate to get in touch. Okay. Thank you, Kyle. Appreciate you being here today. All right. Thanks, Stephen. All right. Take care. To learn more about Kyle Kissock and Jackson Hole Wildlife Foundation, visit the jacksonholeconnection.com episode number 198. Thank you, everybody, who helps keep this podcast on the air. My wife, Laura, my boys, Lewis and William, my editor and my marketing director, Michael Morey. I sure appreciate you all sharing your time with me today. Cheers till next week when I see you right back here for another episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.